0: God, it is uh, so good to gather together with your people uh, this morning um, and and honestly every Sunday morning as we gather together. And so we just say thank you for that. And God, we do ask that this time uh, would be used by you uh, to continually transform us, uh, just to continually renew our hearts and and our minds, to make us more like you, to encourage us and to shape us, uh, to mold us more into the image of your Son. And God, we ask that. Uh, this time this morning, would, would not uh, that, that transformation would not just stay here this morning, but it would be really a catalyst for uh, the rest of the week that would spur us on to bear much fruit uh, tomorrow and the day after and the day after and, and through the rest of the lives that you have given us here on earth. God, I ask now as we approach your word that you would use this passage this morning to help us examine our hearts, to examine our commitments And God, that you would ultimately use it to make us greater disciples of the King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Friday, Saturday of this week, so the last couple days, I was uh, down at Hidden Acres for our men's retreat. Uh, Great time, and uh, the other guys that were down there and I, we we were having a conversation yesterday because we got very little sleep on Friday night, and that was all self-inflicted. And we were talking about uh, conversations that we were probably going to have with our wives once we got back. Uh, wh- uh, conversations that would say, go something along the lines of, you know, how would you sleep? How would you get enough sleep? And our wives would just give us these looks of, you're kidding me, right? And, uh, and then the response that we had to wrestle through is, do we try to empathize with them and say, hey, we didn't get much sleep either. Even though we, that was a choice. We, we could have slept as much as we want. Or do we say, hey, I got a, a lot of sleep, and, and just make things great from that perspective as well. So uh, a no-win situation, uh, but, but it's a great time. Uh, men, if you haven't been to it before, I encourage you to, to check it out next year. Uh, one of the things that I find most valuable about the men's retreat is it is, uh, is not the, the large gatherings. It's honestly the the small group breakout discussions that take place amongst the people from our church afterwards. Had some great discussions on Friday night and on Saturday morning, uh, on last night as well, just talking through uh, the the text that was exposited by uh, the speaker and how that influences, how that impacts our lives. And it is significant to realize that life transformation most oftentimes happens not in necessarily large gatherings, but instead... It happens in small discussions, in conversations with those that are closest to us, those that we are willing to open ourselves up to. And our text this morning reveals that that's one of the ways that God has planned to change the world. As we look at this text, we, we see that there are, are two different types of, of of changing the world, or two different types of exerting influence that are on display. Uh, in the first half of our text, we see Jesus interacting with the crowds. And he is a guy who can, he can attract a crowd like no one else. People flock to him from, from all over the region. And yet, in the second half of the text, we see that Jesus is a guy who really, really just desires to go deep with a few men who he can entrust The gospel with, who can trust the the message of the kingdom, what God has sent him to earth to share with all people. And as we look at this text, we see that this is Jesus's plan to change the world. It's not something that comes through the mobilization of the crowds. It is instead something that comes through the way of the cross by, by bringing some disciples, a few people to him to share the message of the cross. And from that moment, all of human history Will be changed. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that Mark doesn't make any apologies about who he says that Jesus is. The Gospel's prologue begins in the first eight verses with a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the one who comes to save all of us. And then immediately in Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus comes on the scene and he is proclaiming this message of the kingdom. But this kingdom is found in him. And in him alone. And immediately after Jesus appears on the scene, we we see that Jesus has this crowd that begins to follow him. And it's not because of his message of the kingdom, it's actually because Jesus is a miracle worker, that Jesus exerts incredible power over sickness and over evil itself. And by the end of Mark chapter one, we see that Jesus is so popular that he can't even enter towns and villages because of the crowds. But at the same time that Jesus has this crowd that begins to to follow him wherever he goes, we also can see in Mark chapter 2 that things aren't perfect for Jesus. As Jesus grows in popularity, the religious establishment also begins to notice this Jesus, and they don't appreciate some of his claims. They don't appreciate that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that kingdom is found in me alone. And so these religious leaders begin to, esta- uh, begin to oppose Jesus, and that opposition culminates in the, the text that we read last week, that we looked at last week, where the powers of that day join together, and they decide that they're going to plot Jesus' death. And this morning, starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, uh, we're going to look at a a new section of the Gospel of Mark. This section uh, looks more at Jesus' popularity as well as at Jesus' opposition from the religious leaders, but even more so, it reveals to us what Jesus wants from us, what Jesus wants from people like you and people like me, people like the crowds, people like the disciples, what Jesus wants from people. Ask yourself that question. What does Jesus want from me? What what does Jesus want with my life? And that is, uh, I think, a helpful question for us to look at this text this morning. This text, a section that shows us uh, more of Jesus' plan to change the world. What does Jesus want from me? And how we answer that question is going to influence the way that we approach Jesus. In fact, the way that this text answers that question is essential. It's crucial for us to understand. What does Jesus want from the crowds that we see mentioned in verse 7 and 8 of this text? What does Jesus want from the religious leaders that are on display in Mark chapter 2, even though they're opposing him? What is it that Jesus wants from those that he calls to be his disciples in Mark chapter 1 and 2 and 3? What does Jesus want from me? And how we answer that question will reveal to us the, the trajectory of our spiritual growth, the, the trajectory of our lives as well. So let's go ahead and take a look at this text. Uh, we're going to look at it in two sections. First, we're going to look at, at two, radically, uh, re, two radically different outcomes. First, we're going to look at the crowd on display in verses 7 through 12. And then we're going to look at the disciples in verses 13 through 19. So let's go ahead and start first and foremost with uh, the, with the crowd. Our text begins with this summary statement just telling us how, how popular Jesus is. It says this, uh, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So here we see in Mark chapter 1 that there's these crowds that are flocking to Jesus. They're coming to him from all the corners of Galilee. But now in Mark chapter 3, we see that Jesus' fame isn't just found in Galilee, but it's actually spread to their surrounding regions. Uh, We have a map. that Let's go ahead and throw that up there. And let's actually throw up the, the next one because it's a little bigger. Uh, still not still not too large. Uh, but, but this is, I think, helpful for us to understand uh, the different locations that are being mentioned here. So Galilee is, is about in the middle or top part of the screen. It's, it's in yellow up there. And that's where uh, Jesus' popularity, his ministry, was focused at first. But now we see that Jesus is beginning to draw crowds from even further away. Jesus, uh, Mark tells us that Jesus begins to attract people from Judea, the green part, down at the uh, the bottom of the screen and Jerusalem, which is circled there in the green part. Uh, It's it's a place that's about 60 to 150 miles away from from Jesus. They're coming to see him and to hear him and hopefully to be healed by him. But even more significant than that distance is the fact that the Judean region of of Palestine at that uh, time was known to be more religiously pure. It was a location Uh, where the Jews of the Jews lived, and so now Jesus is not only gathering people from this backwater part of of Israel's former uh, location, but now he's actually starting to get actual Jews to follow him. But that's not all. In fact, we see the next section, what it says is that he's actually getting crowds from Idumea, and that's a section right below Judea, and then beyond the Jordan. That's the pink and the orange region on the east side of that map. He's even getting crowds from Tyre and Sidon. Let's go ahead and throw the next picture up, if you haven't done that already. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, very far north of of Galilee, uh, in a very Gentile area. And and now we see, and this is the important thing for us to recognize, Jesus is not just attracting Galileans. He's not just attracting the, the pure Jews of Judea. Jesus is also attracting people from Gentile regions. He's attracting people from Tyre and Sidon, from beyond the Jordan, all of these locations where the message of of the Jewish faith had not truly taken root. And so here is Jesus, this Galilean son of a carpenter. And he's attracting this crowd that is so large, this crowd that is so intent on being with him, that he actually tells some of his followers, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to have a boat ready for me just in case things get out of hand here. And Jesus' command here about the boat is, is significant. It's not just a throwaway comment because it shows us how close this crowd is to a mob how close they are to just overwhelming Jesus. And it also underscores what Jesus has come to do. We've looked at this a couple different times as we've worked through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' primary purpose is not for us, or it's not for him, to to just heal people. He he does that, but that's not the primary focus of his ministry. In fact, we see that the primary focus of Jesus' ministry is the proclamation of the Word of God. And so Jesus has his disciples get this boat ready for him so that way if the crowds get too close, too focused on healing, too, too focused on exorcisms, that he can push out into the water and he can stand back and he can continue to do what God has called him to do. And that is declare that the message of the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand and it is found in him. Jesus actually does this in Luke chapter 5. Uh, Luke chapter 5 verse 3 says this, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So this this statement here of Jesus getting this boat ready, it it, it fits into Jesus' mission. We've seen Jesus' mission on display earlier in the Gospel of Mark, and Mark tells us in the next part of this section why crowds are coming to Jesus. It's not because Jesus is teaching the message of the kingdom. It's not because they're listening to the message of the gospel. Instead, in verses 10 through 12, we see the reason here. It says this, For, or because, he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So why are people following Jesus not just from Galilee, not just from Judea, not just from the surrounding regions of Idumea and beyond the Jordan? Why are people following Jesus from all the way up in Tyre and Sidon? It's not because of the message of the gospel. It's because Jesus can heal. And so all these people are coming to Jesus all, from all over the place. In verse 10 we see it's because Jesus has the power to heal. People are traveling on foot for hundreds of miles because they think that if they can just touch jesus then they would be healed and the second reason is verse 11 verse 11 we see that there's this other reason why people are coming to jesus it's because jesus has power over the demonic that jesus has power over evil incarnate that's what the text has in view when it talks about these unclean spirits Mark is painting this picture of of a Jesus who is so powerful that evil spirits that have gone unnoticed amongst these people for years now are suddenly manifested in the power of Jesus' presence. That Jesus is so powerful that his enemies fall down before him. They're filled with dread at the very thought of who Jesus is. They are forced to recognize who Jesus is. And that forced recognition... It's just a bit of a foretaste of what we will all once see. Paul refers to it in Philippians chapter 2. He's referring to the end of time when he says it's not just the demons who will be forced to recognize who Jesus is. Every single creature under heaven will one day recognize who Jesus is, Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's two parallels here between Philippians 2 and, and Mark chapter 3. The first is that the demonic, they, they bow before Jesus, but that's not it. The second piece is that they confess who Jesus actually is, and Paul says, hey, it's not just going to be the demonics someday that are, that are forced to this recognition of, of bowing to, to observe who Jesus is, but also they're going to confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God. But as we look at Mark chapter 3, we might be somewhat surprised, well, why exactly is it that Jesus is telling these demons to be quiet? Telling them to be silent about his true nature. After all, in our perspective, we might think, "Hey, that'd be a great opportunity for Jesus to get some free publicity." That, that these evil spirits are able to recognize who he is, and, and you know that might spark a revival. Well, next week, uh, as we continue through Mark, we're going to look at Mark chapter three, uh, verses twenty through thirty-five, in a passage that's commonly referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in that text, we see that the religious leaders from Jerusalem claim that the only reason why Jesus is able to cast out these evil spirits is because he's actually possessed by one himself. The only reason that Jesus has power over the demonic is because he is actually possessed by a demon himself. So Mark chapter 3, verse 22, it says this, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Jesus wants to avoid any association with evil, as though the declaration of his identity were a part of his kingdom. And in one sense, that's, that's not all that surprising. We see it every election cycle. It's never a good idea to let your opposition be the ones who are in charge of your, your publicity, uh, in charge of the narrative of, of who you are. And it's important for us to recognize that just because these evil spirits recognize who Jesus is, even though they were declaring Jesus' true nature, that doesn't mean it's going to lead to a full-scale revival. In fact, it could backfire. And the opposite could happen as well. So that's one reason why Jesus tells these demons to be silent. Another reason, and probably more significant, is that uh, the confession of these evil spirits provides us with a very, very powerful warning. It's a warning for the crowds, it's a warning for us, it's a warning for Mark's original audience. These crowds, they flock to Jesus, and they flock to Jesus because of his power to heal and his power over evil, but it has nothing to do with his mission. It has nothing to do with his proclamation of the kingdom, that he comes to bring the kingdom of God here. And in a very real sense, even though these crowds love Jesus, they love to be around him, they, they love to be in his presence, it, there's, there's no depth. There and their relationship with Jesus. There's no repentance. There's no faith. There's no commitment on their part. And I think that in the moment Jesus hits a rough patch, the moment that he finds a disease that is too powerful for him to heal, the moment Jesus encounters a demon that he can't cast out instantly, the crowds will disappear. They'll move on. And so Mark is giving us a warning here when he's referring to these crowds and he's, he's talking about these demons who, who actually know who Jesus is while the crowds don't actually know who Jesus is. And, and he's, he's saying that just because you know who Jesus is, it doesn't do you any good. Just because you know that Jesus is the Christ, just because you know that Jesus is the Son of God, it will do you no good. Mark leaves no doubt in the minds of his readers of of Jesus' power over evil and the future destruction that, that awaits these demons. And if that's true for these demons who know who Jesus is, what does that mean for these crowds who don't know who Jesus is? These crowds who flock to Jesus but have no desire to actually know this Jesus if this reluctant reluctant recognition of who Jesus is is not going to save the demons, then how much more those who have no interest in Jesus' message, Jesus' message of repentance, Jesus' message of the kingdom that is found in him and in him alone. You see, this is a warning for us today. It is a warning for us, uh, asking us to ask the question, what is it that draws us to Jesus? What is it that draws us to the church? What is it that draws us to Christians? Am I like those that are among the crowd, that I'm drawn to the flash of Jesus' power, but I'm unwilling to hear the message of the cross? Do I like to to keep Jesus at arm's length, to keep my options open, to make sure that I have a plan B? Do I settle for not just being Christian, but instead just being Christian-ish, so that the moment Jesus says something that's hard, Or the moment that Jesus says something that's too demanding of me, I can count my losses and say, hey, that's not true for me. The the Gospel of John actually reveals that that's exactly what took place with these crowds. John chapter 6 says this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense of this? And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Here, in Jesus' popularity, we are given a warning. If we only relate with Jesus on a superficial level, if we only relate to Jesus on the level of the crowds, then we have to beware. As Paul reminds us in that passage from Philippians 2, there's going to be a day where every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, will recognize that Jesus is the Christ, but forced obedience won't save us. You know, as we began uh, looking at this text, uh, we asked the question, what does Jesus want from people? And it's pretty clear from this text so far that Jesus doesn't want us to respond the way the crowds do. It's not to respond with this superficial, half-hearted obedience or this half-hearted commitment to Jesus. It's not that Jesus doesn't love the crowds; he he does love the crowds very much, just like he loves the religious leaders of the day. That's why Jesus keeps pointing them and saying, "Hey, hey! Don't focus just on the miracles. Don't just focus on this exorcism, but also look beyond it. Look beyond it to see the power of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom that I bring." Remember the content of my message, Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, Jesus here is concerned that these crowds, they're, they're going to listen to this message of the gospel and they're going to let it go out one ear, uh, in one ear and out the other, and Jesus desires that they would recognize that he is the son of God, that he is the one who comes to bring the kingdom of God, and that he is the one who brings salvation and deliverance. It only comes through him. All of these things that the Old Testament talks about, about a one-day future deliverance, this future salvation, this future kingdom of God, only found in Jesus. And that's his message to the crowd. That is found nowhere else but in me. In the second section here, we see exactly what it is that Jesus wants from people, this calling of the 12 apostles. It's it's so powerful. Um, If you have your Bible, let's continue reading in, in verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. One of my favorite moments of each and every day is when I come home from the office. And uh, when, when I walk in the house, I hear what sounds like a stampede rushing to, to the door to see me. Um, so I walk into the garage, and there's this pitter-patter of feet coming to, to see me. Kids are excited to see me. I actually think Crystal's more excited to see me um, just because she can finally have an adult conversation again. And, and it's just it's this highlight of my day. I just, I just love this, this sweet re- reunion every single day. But I, I'm going to confess something to you here. Uh, after a very short amount of time, I, I'm, I'm going to confess that it, after hearing, Dad, 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 can you play with me? Can you, can you read this book to me? Can you do this puzzle with me? Can I have a snack? Can we go outside? Can we have a dance party? Can we, what, what's for supper? Dad, 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 all, all of this, I, I confess that I will try to disappear. All of my clothes are actually in our basement, and so I'll just sneak downstairs when, you know, hey, what's that over there? And then I'll run out and, and go downstairs. And, uh, and I'll change real quick into comfortable clothes, and and pretty quickly, as I'm still downstairs changing, I hear coming down the stairs. I know they're coming for me. And so I decide, hey, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to hide. And so oftentimes, I will actually go into our laundry room, and I will hide behind storage totes, so that way our kids can't find me. Because I see this great desire to just be alone, to just be by myself for a few short seconds. I'm a terrible person. I I, I get that. And as I read Jesus retreating in this moment, I feel bad that I think of that in me because Jesus isn't doing it for a selfish reason. He's doing it for a good reason. But Jesus retreats from the crowds. He goes up onto the mountain. And then what he does, he, he, he calls those whom he desires to him. That's this powerful moment in Jesus' ministry. This is actually the moment where the kingdom of God is established, where the church is founded, where Jesus has this plan to spread the message of the gospel. And he starts by calling 12 people to him. But not only that, we, we also see from the gospel of Luke, the parallel passage here, Jesus doesn't just go up on the mountain and, and say, hey, you know what, I, I want you and you and you and you, kind of like schoolyard pick them. Now, we see from Luke that Jesus actually spends a whole night in prayer beforehand, communing, fellowshipping with his Father. Luke chapter 6. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. You see, Jesus is surrounded by the crowds. He's the most popular man in that region in the first century. And the thing Jesus desires more than anything is just fellowship with his Father. He just desires to spend time with God. And before this monumental moment in the establishment of his kingdom, he retreats from the crowds and he pursues his father's guidance for this choosing of the 12 apostles. Mark, as as I mentioned just a few moments ago, Mark tells us that Jesus calls to him all that he desires. That's That's a powerful moment, powerful phrase. It reminds us of where discipleship starts. Discipleship does not start with our initiative, but instead starts with a call from God. What an incredible thought. That God loved us first. That Jesus loved us first. Not that we desired him and we had to convince him to love us, but instead that he desired us first first. Our commitment in discipleship is not uh, an act of trying to uh, earn God's favor. It's not this act of initiative. Instead, it is an act of response to the incredible love that God has for us. And you see, what we see in this calling of the 12 is that Jesus desires one thing more than anything else. More than the, the roar of the crowds, Jesus desires one thing. He doesn't want the crowds that will be here today and will be gone tomorrow, he wants a small group of people. this small group of people who are going to dedicate their lives to him. And they're going to dedicate their lives to the gospel. Not these crowds that'll, that'll be with Jesus, but they don't care about his message. They just want to be entertained by his ability to heal people. He wants people who have committed themselves to the message of, of the gospel. And this is Jesus' plan to change the world. Last Sunday night at our vision night, one of the themes that came up time and time and time again was the importance of discipleship. The importance of being disciples and the importance of, of making disciples here in our church. We want to be a church that continues to grow ever more faithful in our commitment to be disciples and our commitment to make disciples. And and we have to, I mean, it's a very Christianist, Christianese term. What does that mean? Well, Mark describes it here. First thing he says about being a disciple is in verse 14, the primary call of discipleship It's not a program, it's not a list of of objectives or things for us to do. It is instead simply to be with Jesus. Jesus calls these men to be with him. He he calls those whom he desires, yes, he has a task for them, he has a mission for them, but first and foremost he says, I want you to be with me And when Jesus calls us to be disciples, he calls us to dwell with him, to let him into every single facet of our lives. That's what Jesus longs for more than anything else from his followers. I want you to just imagine for a moment what this looked like for these disciples. Jesus allowed these men to be with him virtually every moment of his life, from this moment until his crucifixion. And they saw what it meant to follow God faithfully in the mountain experiences of life, in the valley experiences of life. They saw and experienced what it meant to follow God faithfully in the roar of the crowd and in the sting of rejection. They saw and experienced what it meant to follow God faithfully in the religious festivals of Judaism and in the mundane Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays of life because they We're with Jesus. Discipleship looks no different today. It looks no different today. It means that we allow Jesus to permeate every single area of our lives, to follow Jesus while we are here at church, to to follow Jesus while we are in the workplace, to follow Jesus with our family, to follow Jesus while we're at the gym, to follow Jesus while we're watching and cheering on the chiefs tonight. It is this commitment to allow Jesus to be in every single area of our lives. Discipleship touches every single piece of our lives. We bring Jesus everywhere. The gospel transforms every square inch of our lives. It is unthinkable to be like the crowds and keep Jesus at at arm's length because we now dwell with Jesus. But... You're probably thinking, well, there's this problem here. How does one dwell with Jesus when Jesus no longer walks the earth? How is it that we can dwell with Jesus when he's not actually physically present? And that's where the second charge from Jesus here comes from. At the end of verse 14, Jesus sends these men out to preach. He says, I got a calling for you. I'm going to use you to build my kingdom, and I'm going to send you out to preach. And what are they preaching? They're preaching the exact same message that Jesus proclaimed at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. The kingdom is here. Repent. Believe the good news of the gospel. You see, Jesus knew that he wouldn't always walk the earth as he did then, and so he dedicated his life to these 12 men to uh, empower them to share this message of the gospel, to, to bring it beyond the borders of Galilee, beyond the borders of Israel, and to the ends of the earth. And this is where this matters for us today, too. You see, Jesus entrusted these 12 men to be his representatives throughout the earth. That's what the word apostle literally means it means sent one, one who is sent to be a representative. These apostles are Jesus' representatives throughout the earth. And Jesus has this plan for these 12 men, these people that he discipled. To not just be content with being Jesus' disciples, but also to make disciples themselves. They had lived with Jesus. They had seen what it looked like to be faithful to God and to follow Jesus. And Jesus intended them to do the exact same for others. To bring that message of the kingdom to the crowds, absolutely. That's what Pentecost is all about in Acts chapter 2. But not just that but to bring the message of the gospel into their lives and invite others into their lives as well. One thing that's significant as you study the New Testament, the word disciple is very common in the gospels, and Paul basically doesn't use it at all in his letters. Paul rarely refers to disciples. Instead, he uses a different word, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to, to understand what discipleship looks like today. Rather than using the word disciple, Paul uses a different word. He uses the word imitate. And so that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he can tell the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's a helpful word, isn't it? This idea of discipleship is imitation, And because we don't have Jesus walking around on the earth like he did 2,000 years ago with the original disciples, the call of discipleship, the call of faithfully following Jesus means that we are called to imitate other believers, to imitate mature believers. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's not conceited of Paul to say this. He's simply saying, hey, I've done the the hard work of growing and learning and following Jesus. Jesus has invaded every single facet of my life. There is nothing of my life that is off limits to Jesus. And so, rather than you, these these Christians in Corinth, thousand miles away from, from where Jesus walked, the context is very different than rural Galilee, rather than you trying to figure this out on your own, watch me. Imitate me, and I will show you what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that's discipleship. One of my favorite books uh, is this book by Michael Card, the, the singer and songwriter. Uh, it's called The Walk. I, I'm pretty sure I've shared this illustration before. Uh, Michael Card uses, uh, the book is all about the, his relationship with the person who discipled him. Michael Card was uh, was discipled by this man named William Lane. William um, Lane. Uh, it was discipled for him over the course of many, many years, and uh, the book is titled The Walk because it uh, that was their primary method of, of just interaction. They would just go on long walks, and they would talk about life and faith, and, and that's how he learned uh, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And at the end of the book, Michael Card uh, is talking about this story of how William Lane was diagnosed with cancer, and, and Michael Card was just heartbroken. But William Lane comes up to Michael Cardin and says to him, hey, this is another opportunity for me to reveal Christ to you. This is another opportunity for me to show you what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the words that he said, just, just so powerful. He said, over the last couple of years, I have shown you what it looks like for a godly man to live. Now I'm going to show you how a godly man dies. Is this powerful, powerful statement of what it means to imitate, what it means to be a disciple, to follow someone, to, to be a disciple and to make disciples. It is faithfully following Jesus, letting him permeate every part of your life and then passing it on to others. That's Jesus' plan for the growth of the church and that's exactly what the disciples did. In fact, we talked in our first week In the Gospel of Mark, we talked about the fact that Peter, the Apostle Peter, discipled Mark, the man who wrote this Gospel. The fact that Jesus commits this message of the Gospel to his apostles is the reason why we have this Gospel that we've been going through This morning, we would not have the gospel of Mark if it weren't for Peter taking this upon himself to disciple Mark, telling him, Mark, follow me as I follow Christ. We know from the gospel of Mark that Peter's early life in following Christ filled with a lot of ups and downs, filled with a lot of failures. And if you look at the book of Acts, the exact same thing is true for Mark. His early life as a Christian is filled with lots of failures. But instead of abandoning Mark, Peter simply says, hey, let me show you how a godly man repents. Let me show you how a godly man returns to following Jesus. And the last few verses of this text tells us who Jesus calls to be his apostles. We've already read it. I won't read it again just because I don't want to have to say that one word Crystal had trouble with. Um, Some of us are familiar with the the names here, uh, others of them less so. In fact, apart from Peter, uh, we don't know a lot about the people that are in this list. Uh, we have to look at, at early church tradition to get any sort of insight into their lives, uh, their successes, their failures, how God used them to spread the gospel. And that's because it's not important. In the grand scheme of things, from, from God's perspective, it's not important where they went, where they ministered. Instead, the focus is on the fact that they were disciples and they made disciples disciples. As we look at this list, we can, we can see even from this list that these are men with shortcomings, that they are men with faults, that they are men's with, men with failures, that uh, those who struggle with temptations from rough backgrounds, and Jesus uses them anyway, transforms them by spending time with them to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. They are ordinary people. That's an encouragement to us. Make no mistake, God uses people like you. The twelve apostles are the epitome of ordinary people. They consist of four businessmen, three of them that we know have a temper. They consist of a former tax collector, an anarchist, a skeptic, and some of these people who seem to rely more on their parents' reputation than their own. And on and on and on. God can and does use ordinary people because there are no extraordinary, perfect, unblemished people that God can use. He uses people with blemishes to change the world and to transform lives. And that's his plan to build his kingdom. You see in the the contrast here between the first half and the second half of this text, there's one thing that Mark wants to make abundantly clear to us, And that's simply this, Jesus' new kingdom, the church, Jesus' new kingdom is not built through crowds, but instead discipleship. It's not built through crowds, it's instead built through discipleship. Jesus is given the opportunity to use these crowds, to mobilize them, to establish his kingdom, and he says, no, just give me 12. Just give me 12 who will live with me, who are committing themselves to the gospel, and I will build my kingdom church and that's what happens and so as we close i want you to just ask yourself am i counted among those who are the crowds or am i among the disciples which set of verses here more accurately describes your life seven through twelve those who who flock to jesus who are interested in jesus but instead just keep him at a distance keep him at arm's length so that way he doesn't make demands of our lives or those in verses 13 through 19, those who dwell with Jesus, those who let Jesus be a part of, of every single part of their lives, who even though we are imperfect, even though we fall short, rest in the grace of the gospel and share that grace with others. I once had a seminary professor who once said, you can, ma- you can impress at a distance, but you impact up close. You can impress at a distance, but you impact up close. And so as we close here, I just want you to ask yourself two questions. What are you doing to make a lasting impact for the kingdom of God? And how might God want to use you to do that? Who are you allowing up close into your life so that you can make an impact through their lives forever, forever? for the good of God's kingdom, and for his glory. You see, one of the ways that we're committed to that here at Crosswinds is through our life groups. We believe that our life groups, that these groups of believers are the perfect place to grow with one another, to spur one another along, to literally do life with others, to hold each other accountable, to teach each other what it means to follow God faithfully, to imitate one another, to grow in Christlikeness. We believe that transformation doesn't primarily take place on Sunday mornings, but instead it takes place in the thousands of conversations that happen throughout the weeks. If you're not a part of a life group, encourage you, there should be an insert in your bulletin. We'd love for you to fill that out and let us know that you would like to be a part of one, and we'll, we'll get a hold of how you can you can get connected to one. We are called to be disciples and to make disciples, to make an impact in our community, in our region, in our world that will last forever. Here in a few weeks, our life groups will actually be going through a discussion on what does it mean for us to make disciples? What does it mean for us to live as Jesus' disciples? How has God uniquely positioned us to make disciples? Again, if you you haven't been in one of those groups uh, and you'd like to be, we'd love for you to fill out that insert in the bulletin and and throw them in the offering bags or place them on the connection desk after the service, Uh, give them to me, do something with them uh, make sure that they get into my hands God has called us to make disciples and that starts by being with Jesus you can impact up close or you can impress at a distance so what are you going to do what is it that Jesus wants from his people he wants us to be his disciples he wants us to dwell with him let's pray Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you for the incredible reminder that it is not through our power, it is not through our initiative, it is not because we were lovely that we entered into a relationship with you, but it was instead because you loved the unlovable. You desired us. And so, God, we ask now that you would help us in the midst of such a busy, crazy world to simply dwell with you, to be your disciples. God, if people here need someone to disciple them, someone that they can learn how to imitate and how they can learn how to be a faithful, godly Christian in their life. I just pray that if that's someone here this morning, that you would um, give them the courage to ask someone. And also at the same time, Lord, as I look at this text and I see ordinary person after ordinary person after ordinary person, people with shortcomings and failures, I know a lot of times we don't feel equipped to make disciples. But God, I just pray that you would impress upon our hearts names, people that you have placed in our spheres of influence that we can invest in, that we can make an impact in their lives for the good of this world, for their good, for their family's good, and for the glory of Christ. Jesus, we thank you so much for the message of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.